Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to look at this account of your servant Daniel and the dream, we pray that you would speak to us individually by your Holy Spirit, that you would hear, that they would hear what you want to say. Amen. Well, if you weren't with us, as Richard, uh, Rector, has said, we started last week with a new series in Daniel, and we saw last week that uh, Daniel and his three friends, who were, we think, about the sort of age of students today, uh, were taken from their land to the city of Babylon, and they were given instructions in the University of Life in Babylon. And the whole purpose of that was to uh, take the brightest and the most able people to go and serve in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. So that was the background. And last week, Jonathan told us that God's people lived with the tension of being a follower of Yahweh, the living God, but having to live in the city of Babylon under the authority of a pagan king. And last week we saw how Daniel was faithful to God, how he was tested, how his faithfulness was demonstrated and rewarded. So tonight we come to chapter 2, and uh, if you like to keep that open, we'll be looking at various parts of it as we go through. And uh, when I was looking at this and praying about it, I thought there were two themes that come out from this chapter. The theme of living lives of faith and responding to fear, and the theme that we've already heard of tonight, the sovereignty of God in the world. So let's uh, start by looking at uh, living lives of faith and responding to fear. question, of course, is, Are we fearful? Well, according to some research, there are major causes of fear within the UK today. Uh, I found this, I don't know if you can read it, I hope you can, from a government webpage, okay, that we uh, apparently, the ones at the top are the people we have the most fear, and uh, the fear is in heights, I can... uh, I can recognize that. I love mountain walking, but uh, my fear of heights doesn't help in that activity. Um, Other fears, uh, things like uh, spiders. Public speaking is a fear that a lot of people have. Um, Fears of uh, crowds, congestion, things like that. We live in fear. However, fear isn't all bad. It can be good, can't it? Because fear can be a vital response for physical and emotional danger. Because if we don't feel any fear, we're not protecting ourselves from legitimate threats. So we think of the hot stove and putting our hands on it. But of course, we often fear situations that are not life or death, and that may well stop us enjoying life. Well, of course, one of the common concerns today that we often hear quite a lot is that we're overprotective towards our children. So they're not given the opportunity, the experiences of, for instance, things like climbing trees, so they don't have 
any fear, but they are stilted in their development. Well, within the book of Daniel, we read of a society that is dominated by despotic kings, kings that hold ultimate power over life and death, such power that they're able to control people by fear. So how did Daniel and his friends respond within this type of society, and what can we learn from it? Well, the book of Daniel, I believe, is a wonderful book because it mixes the natural world with the supernatural spiritual world. We're told in chapter 2, through the king's dreams, what will happen in the future, but also that a very human man can't sleep because he has dreams and his mind was troubled. So in verse 1 of our reading, in the second year of the reign, the young king Nebuchadnezzar had dreams in the plural. And these half-remembered dreams played on his mind. Now this is despite the fact that he was the most powerful man in the region. And I'd like to suggest to you that Nebuchadnezzar was like many powerful, rich and famous people today. Politicians fear that they will lose control. Sports people fear and fret that they will lose that number one place. Celebrities fear that they will fall out of the public eye. How often is it that a person who enjoys the ultimate in the outward success falls victims to their own thoughts and fears? Well, of course, we here tonight may not be celebrities or politicians, but we can relate to this, can't we? Because at times we can't sleep. Our minds are overactive. We're worried about a certain situation. So what do we have then in this chapter? Well, we see here fear in at least two occasions within the chapter. Look at verse 3. I've lost it. We've got the fear of the king. He is troubled by his dreams. He is troubled by his dreams. This is a type of fear, isn't it? So he calls upon those people that are paid in their terms extremely large sums of money to advise him and to give him counsel to provide answers to the difficult questions that he faces. And this, in turn, creates fear for this group of people. So we've got two types of fear here. We see this in verses 10 and 12 where we see the second type of fear, the fear of the wise man, or wise men, I should say, who fear for their lives because they can't tell the king what he wants to hear. And so we read in verses 5 and 6, the king commands the wise men, the magicians, the astrologers, the sorcerers, the enchanters, and this would include Daniel and his Jewish friends. And he commands them. Look what he commands them. He commands them to tell him his dreams and then to interpret him. And although the passage doesn't explicitly say to us that they were in fear, the threat of the king must have led to this because he set them an impossible task to complete. And a failure to do so would lead them to losing their lives. What a situation to be in. So how would they respond, these two groups of people? The wise men, the magicians, sorcerers, and Daniel and his friends. 
Well, we see in our passage two different responses to the king's command. Two different responses. Firstly, the wise men. They respond in a different way. They respond with reason and despair. The wise men try to reason with the king. They they are used to using their power of the human mind. They study historical movements, economic developments, cultural shifts in order to give advice concerning the future to the king. They're a bit like are the advisors that the cabinet officers have to call upon today. These are wise men. They're used to using their minds. But they don't believe in revelation where the spiritual world breaks into the human world because then they are able to use human data to give advice. However, and this time, they say this is impossible. They say it's only the gods that can tell you what you have dreamed of and the interpretation for them. So these men were stymied. They didn't know what to do. Plainly, their gods were not present here on earth to give the answers to their problem. And it's evident from their response that they don't have access to the gods, which was somewhat surprising because some of these advisors would have been priests in the temples of the Babylonian gods. And so we see here that the the king had caught them out. They didn't have access to the spiritual world of the gods. And so despair reigned. So we see then the wise men were despairing and they tried to reason. But what about Daniel? Well, we see a completely different situation with Daniel because we read in verse 14 that he acted with wisdom and tact towards the man who'd been given the job of killing those wise men who couldn't tell the king what he wanted to hear. And of course, that would have included Daniel himself. And Daniel acts consistently within his character, despite the danger that he was in. Now, we saw something of Daniel's character last week in chapter 1, verse 20, where they were told that he was wise. And in chapter 1, verse 17, we were also told that Daniel could understand dreams and visions of all kinds. So Daniel acts within his character. And he does something quite surprising. Look at verse 16. He asks for time. Now, bear in mind, the king had already rejected that from the, uh, the wise men, but Daniel asks for time. And surprisingly, the king granted him this, perhaps because Daniel had already impressed him. Now, we need to realize, of course, that Daniel had been trained by life to rely on God's mercy. And here we see what distinguishes Daniel. What what was his source of power and strength? Well, it was his reliance on prayer. Daniel, when confronted with an impossible task, turns to God in prayer. Daniel, like David 400 years earlier, learned from his experience. God could be trusted no matter how dreadful the situation looked. And so we read here, that Daniel went to his friends, he shared with his friends the bad news, and he urged them to plead with God in prayer for mercy, that this mystery 
might be made known to them. Now, the practical applications of these sorts of passages are difficult, aren't they? But I think we've got a good point for us here. That is the principle of sharing bad news with friends that we trust, those that have faith in God, those that have shown a willingness to be faithful even in times of trouble, and to pray for wisdom concerning the issue in question. However, as we look at this situation, look at the urgency of it. These friends couldn't hang around or put it off by trying to find the answer to the problem set by the king. As John Lennox writes concerning the incident, here are four captive students alone in ancient Iraq, daring to believe not only that there is a God in heaven, but that he is sufficiently interested in them to communicate with them and to answer their prayer. John Lennox goes on to say, it was the first student prayer meeting recorded in history. What a wonderful thing for you students to know. You know, you are in good hands here, aren't you? Daniel and his friends have committed the whole situation to God. And whatever your issues are, whatever your problems are, you can do likewise. So it was the first prayer meeting. And what do they do? They plead to God for mercy. This wasn't to be a gentle prayer in a quiet meeting. No, the impression given here is that these men were on their knees pleading with God to show them the dreams and their meaning so that their lives will be saved from certain death. There was urgency and a desperate need. But there was also a reliance upon God to show them in a miraculous way what the king's dreams were. And it's interesting to note, isn't it? They didn't turn to their own wisdom or understanding or they didn't go outside to ask anybody else to help. No, they committed the whole situation to God in prayer. They understood the desperate situation they were in. Nobody could help them or could save them from the king's judgment apart from God himself. And again, can I suggest for us tonight that this is a good pattern for us to follow? Because it's when we realize our need to know and experience the love of Jesus and his saving action on the cross that we can come to him in prayer. Likewise, it's when we realize that this is the situation that our friends, our neighbors, our families are in that we're all going to lose life in eternity and lose out from a relationship with God when the urgency of the situation takes hold of us, that we will get on our knees and plead with God to send his Holy Spirit to 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 convince us of sin and Jesus' death for us. And this is the pattern, of course, we see in revivals throughout the world. And this is what happened in the Welsh revival as well. And so we read in this chapter, Daniel and his friends plead with God to show mercy upon them and therefore show them the mystery of the king's dreams. Now, we don't know how long they prayed for. All we're told is that Daniel was given a vision by God during the night in which he learnt of the nature of the king's dreams. And this is something that, of course, we may not be used to. The whole idea of visions. But can I assure you, visions are biblical. They're a way that God communicates with mankind. 
And I could give you many, many references to this, but I'm just going to pick out two tonight. In 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17, we read, Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire around Elisha. He saw a vision. And then we read also in Acts chapter 2, verse 17, Peter writes, In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Perhaps we should be praying that God will pour out his spirit upon us, that our sons and daughters might prophesy and our young men see visions and old men dream dreams. So Daniel had a vision given to him. How did he react to this vision? Well, we read that he accepted it. He didn't question the vision. No, he accepted it. It was a supernatural event again, a breaking through of the normal reality of the king's court. Daniel accepted the vision and what it told him. But what did it lead to? How did he react to it? Well, it leads to two things. Firstly, if you look at verses 20 through to verse 23, it led him to praise of God. Not praise, you'll note, that he was going to be saved because of the message of the, vi- of the vision, but rather praise concerning the very nature of the God who gave him the vision. So we read in verse 20, he praised God for his mercy and proclaimed his nature. He praised God for his wisdom and his might, the way he changes the times and the seasons, the way he removes kings and raises up kings, the way he gives wisdom to the wise, he gives knowledge to the discerning, the way he reveals deep and secret things. He knows what's in the darkness, and light dwells within him. What a some commentators call a psalm of praise that came from Daniel's lips in response to the vision. And each of these characteristics of God runs counter to man's view of his world because here we see that God alone is the source of understanding and wisdom. It's God alone that is the cause of kingdoms and gives knowledge and wisdom to who he chooses. And all this came from this revelation from a vision at night. Now, what Daniel saw or didn't see, we don't know. We're not told. But what was the result? Daniel was assured. And when we as Christians understand the hope and assurance that we have in God's word and Jesus' death on the cross, we can approach trials and tribulations in the same way that Daniel did. So the first way that Daniel responded then was with praise. Look at the second way he responded, because he takes practical action. He takes practical action. He goes to the king. Look at verse 25 and then verses 27 to 28. Daniel gives the same response that the wise men did concerning the problems of interpreting dreams, but he states that, Only God can do this. 
Daniel witnesses to the fact that his God has the power and ability to reveal mysteries that have come through visions and dreams, a God of the supernatural world. Now this was important because at that time dreams were considered to be messages from the gods and they caused people concern if not alarm. And so the very nature of the king's dream would have suggested that the news was not good news. Daniel tells the king what his dream contains and what it means. And Daniel has remained loyal to his God despite his natural fear. Daniel points the king towards God. We see this in verse 30. And again, isn't this another good example for us to follow? Because within all our actions, all our witnessing, shouldn't point to us or our organization or church, but to the God who rules and sent Jesus to earth. And so so there we've got it. The response to fear by Daniel and his friends. What about the evidence of the sovereignty of God? What about the evidence? Well, we see here that Daniel interprets the king's dreams. He points to the power of God who's given the king power to rule over the kingdom. But he doesn't stop here. No, he points forward in time to other kingdoms and other empires all of which will rise and perish in time. And there we've got on the screen, I don't know if you can read it, some people's interpretations of the dream. I'm not going to spend any time on the actual dream itself, on the different uh, empires that have come to rule and and to fall. But uh, there you have it for, for you just to have a look at. Of course, This is something that, as we study history, we will understand. Winston Churchill, that famous historian, wrote, the shores of history are strewn with wrecks of empires. And we should be aware that even this kingdom of the Western world that we live in, if Jesus doesn't come, will fall as well. And sometimes empires fall virtually overnight. Only a few years previous to this writing, the Assyrian Empire had fallen to the Babylonians as Nineveh went up in smoke. And then Nebuchadnezzar's own Babylonian Empire would fall to the Medo-Persians in a single night. And this is the famous instance that we will see in Daniel 5 with the writing on the wall. And so it has continued throughout history. Mighty emperors rise only to be toppled and replaced by others. And of course, the same can be said for us as well, because we have our own little empires, don't we? We set up our domestic empires, our social, business, financial, or even ecclesiastical empires in the midst of which we sit enthroned. Well, we may fool ourselves that we're invulnerable, but out of the blue, an unexpected medical diagnosis, the sudden news of redundancy, an economic downturn, a failed exam, a moment of sexual unfaithfulness, and everything comes tumbling down. So we see in the dream the rise of empires and the fall of empires. But of course, this is only half the dream. The statue is toppled by a stone. But what about the stone itself? What is it that stone that topples 
the empires. Well, we read that the stone grows and grows until it becomes a huge mountain and fills the whole earth. Look at verse 35. That stone speaks, though, of a higher throne and the kingdom of God. In verse 44, we read, In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. The stone was much more powerful than the awesome statue. And this tells us that it's God's kingdom from which all others are derived. And so we see then, in this book and throughout the book of Daniel, not least here in chapter 2, that Nebuchadnezzar was never in charge. It was God who caused Nebuchadnezzar to dream his dream in the first place. And then God who gave Daniel the ability to interpret it. God gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. So we see the sovereignty of God here in this dream and in the interpretation. We see something of God's kingdom. We see that God's kingdom is distinct from earthly kingdoms. It was not built with human hands. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. And we see here also that the God's kingdom starts tiny and unpromising. It's like the mustard seed that Jesus refers to. But that grows and grows. And of course today we know there are millions of Christians. The church of God keeps on growing. God's kingdom is being extended. Earth's proud empires will rise and fall. But God's kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. So what then can we take from this passage tonight? if we're followers of Jesus. What can we take from it for ourselves? Well, I believe that we can take the encouragement that the God we serve and follow is in charge of history and is in charge of today. Life, of course, won't be necessarily easy, but God is in control. He is sovereign. In the meantime, of course, we, like Daniel have dual citizenship. We are members, not only of an earthly kingdom, but also of a kingdom of God. And so there will be tensions as we live within the two kingdoms. But of course, this raises another question for us tonight. What happens if we're not in the kingdom of God? So how do we become members of the kingdom? Are we born into it because... We're born as English people or because my parents went to church? Well, I don't think so. No, we become members of God's kingdom through acceptance and belief that Jesus is God's son by confessing our wrongdoing and asking that Jesus saves us through his death on the cross. And so we have this verse from John John, that will tell us this. John 1, verse 12 says, However, to all who received him, those believing in his name, he gave authority to become God's children. In other words, to become members of God's kingdom. The kingdom that Daniel tells us 
will never end. And that we can take from this passage. And so, if you are someone who doesn't know whether you're in God's kingdom or not, perhaps you want to uh, investigate that more, please feel free to come and talk to Richard or myself after the service has finished. Because it's great to be in the kingdom of God. We want to be there. And we want to be with a king who will outlast all earthly kingdoms. Amen.